Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rathnerless. I have a confession to make. As a kid, even though I was really into computers, I was always more of a dreamer than a practical computer user. I really loved games, I really loved playing with computers to try to get them to do cool things. And even though I would read anything I could on games, part of my brain still thought that the stuff that I saw in science fiction was just around the corner. I didn't really think it was 25, 30 years off. So when TV shows started to show animated characters, things like in Tron or Weird Science or Max Headroom, part of me thought, well, maybe this is possible. Maybe this is something I could get into. I had a friend when I was young who was really into computers, more than I ever could at the time. His family supported his habit. He had a great setup, all Commodore-based. The guy could read Hexadecimal, and he had a collection of games that you wouldn't believe. I would occasionally go dumpster diving to help him find equipment for his growing computer needs. And he would tell me stories about other computer users in my town. I had no idea these people existed. One of the people he talked about had a good Commodore Amiga setup. I'd never really seen a Commodore Amiga, but I knew they were really good at graphics. And I had asked him, isn't that what they're using to work on Max Headroom? He said, yeah. So in my head, I thought, wow, this guy can make Max Headroom. I kind of danced around it. I didn't want to seem stupid, but I said, has he done, you know, computer-generated people? He said, yeah, he's done some really interesting animation. Can I see it, I said? He said, of course, let me talk to him, and maybe we'll go over there next weekend. That whole week, I thought about how cool it's going to be to see this amazing animation. That Saturday morning, we got up, went over to his house. Now, this guy was in high school, a couple years older than us. And he had a room off his bedroom, almost a second bedroom. But the second bedroom was just filled with, like, video games, computers, monitors, televisions. He also had one of those chairs where you kind of sit on your knees. I'd seen those on TV, but I'd never actually seen someone using them. So the guy asked me what computer I used. I said I had a Commodore 64. He gave me a box of discs filled with games. Very cool guy. He then said, oh, you want to see something really cool? Right away, I'm ready to talk to some computer simulation, or I'm going to see something really spectacular. In retrospect, this was very impressive. He had basically built a sort of self-portrait in the Amiga, and it looked really neat, but it didn't do anything. He then showed me some simple wheel-turning animations with cogs and gears, and some other sort of really neat vector animations. I smiled, we hung out, played some weird European games, and then I went home, very disappointed. I have to admit today that even when I watch a show like CSI and I see really cool technology, I don't initially roll my eyes like a lot of people tend to do. Instead, I think, wow, it would be really cool if we could do that. Now, I'm sure if they took me into a CSI lab, I'd be very disappointed. But take me into a CSI lab 25 years from now. Because of computers, science fiction has creeped almost into every crime show that we have today. On today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about science fiction that has not happened yet. We're going to talk about Max Headroom. We're going to talk about its British origins. We'll talk about the actors and characters on the show. We'll talk about Max outside of the television series, the advertisement, and other areas where he's shown up. And of course, we have a lot of great audio to accompany it. 
We have an information-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Max Headroom had his origins in the United Kingdom and was created by George Stone, Annabelle Jenkel, and Rocky Morton. He has always been portrayed by the Canadian-American actor Matt Frewer. Frewer was born in Washington, D.C., in the United States, and his family were Canadian, and he was raised in Ontario, Canada. He would land the role of Max Headroom in the mid-'80s, but he's continued to work since then, recently, and probably most famously now, playing the retired villain Moloch the Mystic in the film adaptation of Watchmen. is a great actor and will probably continue to work, but he'll always, to me, and, and probably to the rest of the world, be always most famous for his role as Max Headroom. Now, a little bit of quick info about Max Headroom, because even though I might have been deluded as a kid into thinking that he was actually computer animated, he was not. Computer technology in the mid-80s was not sufficiently powerful to accomplish full-motion, voice-synced human animation. So Max's image was actually that of Frewer, wearing latex and foam prosthetics with a fiberglass bodysuit that was created by Peter Mackenzie Lytton and John Humphreys of Coast to Coast Productions in the UK. This was then superimposed over a moving geometric background, sort of a screensaver-looking thing. Even that background was not actually computer graphics at the time. It was hand-drawn cell animation. But when the show came to America, the animation changed, and that background would be generated by Commodore Amiga computers. They would also use Amiga 1000s in the overlays for the news segments in the television series. So we in America are very familiar with the Max Headroom show in two formats. One was a sci-fi drama slash dark comedy on ABC, and the other was an interview show on Cinemax. The show itself started in Britain in 1985, was made by Carlton TV, and was shown on Channel 4. The first season of the Max Headroom show had six shows, and it would return for a second season of ten episodes, plus a Christmas special. In the Max Headroom show, which is different from the drama, that drama is based actually on the origin special, which I'll talk about in a second, but the Max Headroom Show was an interview show, and he would have guests on each week in a lounge bar setting with him set on top of a bar, and the TV would be right in front of the interviewee, and they would have back-and-forth questions, and then Max would introduce and play music videos. Now, that was during the first season. In the second season, when the show was also broadcast in America, the show got bigger. 
It had a studio and audience, which Max would interact with, and it had a lot more shine and polish. Even though the range of entertainment on the show was much broader, I think the show was a lot less clever because it felt padded. I found that the back and forth between a television set and a celebrity was much more genuine, and it felt fresh because it was so odd. Hi. No, this is not a blip, 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 Bert. This is Max Headroom on Network 23. And I, and, I, and I know that right now you're looking at me and you're thinking, wow, wow, he could become a star. So, so before you get the wrong idea about me, let me just say very humbly, you're right, I could. Now, just mentioning that it's a TV interview show with a television set talking to a person sounds really weird, and it was. So much so that the people behind the show needed to explain it. And they came up with a telefilm that gives the origins of Max Headroom. And this was called Max Headroom 20 Minutes Into the Future. It was broadcast in 1985 on Channel 4 in the UK and was created by Chrysalis Visual Programming Limited. The film introduces the character of Edison Carter, played by Matt Frewer, who is the brains behind Max Headroom. He's a television reporter trying to expose some corruption. Carter works for Network 23, which has created a new form of subliminal advertising known as blipverts, which can press a 30-second commercial into three seconds. Unfortunately, the three seconds of commercial time has a tendency to overload the synapses in a person's brain, and they blow up. Edison Carter figures this out, and while attempting to flee from his own network's headquarters with the proof, he suffers a serious head injury while striking a low-clearance sign labeled Max Headroom. In a strange twist, a computer genius working for the company is ordered to download Carter's brain, and when he does so, he gives birth to a completely new entity called Max Headroom. The problem is, is that they were hoping that it would just be Carter's brain, but instead, this simulation is seemingly broken and starts babbling about Max Headroom over and over again because it was the last thing he saw. They decide to get rid of Carter and the simulation of Max Headroom. Max winds up in the hands of a pirate television station owner named Blank Reg. After a bit of nurturing, Max Headroom comes to life and starts firing out gags, hosting his own show, and Reg's ratings go right through the roof. Carter, meanwhile, who had been sold to a organ harvester, escapes with the help of his colleague Theora Jones, and Max and Carter together eventually defeat Network 23. It's pretty cool. This is Max, 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 Max Headroom, and I'll, I'll be back in a minute. The buzz about Max after this is pretty high, and the U.S. decides it's going to do its own Max Headroom show. So they take the story from 20 Minutes in the Future, and in 1987, bring that to the United States. The film would be reshot as a pilot program for a new series that would be on ABC, and although it was a retelling of the 20 Minutes into the Future from the UK, it had some plot changes and some minor visual touch changes. But the basic storyline remains the same. The only original cast retained for the US version were Matt Frewer, Amanda Pays, and W. Morgan Shepard, who played Blank Reg. So I'll tell you a little bit about these characters in the show. You had Max, who I've talked about, who is derived from Edison Carter. And Edison is a hard-hitting reporter for Network 23, who is good at uncovering bad things. Because the show had such a short run, we don't know a ton about Edison Carter, except for that he is really good at his job. 
Theora Jones was played by Amanda Pays. Theora is Network 23's star controller and works very closely with Edison Carter. She's kind of a love interest of Carter, although because the show didn't last very long, that subplot was never fully explored. Here's an interesting little trivia fact about her. The OGG OGG Theora Open Video Codec is named after her. Bryce Lynch was played by Chris Young, and he's a child prodigy and computer hacker. Basically, Network 23's one-man technology department. And Bryce is kind of a stereotypical hacker for the time. Really interested in technology and not too interested in the outside world. In the pilot episode of the series, Bryce is really morally ambiguous. But as the show continues, he kind of grows closer to working with Edison and Theora. Which is odd, since it was his actions that brought the sign down that says Max Headroom on it and gave Edison his bad injury. And would birth Max Headroom. Blank Reg is played by W. Morgan Shepard. He was also in the UK version of the show. They call him Blank because he's a person who's not indexed in any database. He's off the grid. He broadcasts the underground big-time television network from a bus. And as the show moves forward, he becomes good friends with Edison Carter and saves him several times. Unlike almost everybody else in the show, is very cyberpunk. Has a mohawk. And we'll talk a little bit about the whole cyberpunk things a little later. Ned Grossberg was played by the late Charles Rocket, and he's a recurring villain in the series. In the UK version, his character's name was Grossman, and he was played by Nicholas Grace. In the pilot episode, Grossberg is the chairman of Network 23, and he's the one who wants to keep the blipverts going. When the blipverts fail, everyone finds out that Grossberg was responsible, and he loses his job as the chairman of Network 23. A few episodes later, he comes back, as a board member of another network called Network 66, which must be evil, and he creates another weird advertising medium that fails, but the current chairman gets blamed, and Grossberg takes over Network 66. The series began as a mid-season replacement in the spring of 1987, and was popular enough to be renewed for the fall television season, but ratings went down really quick, because it was up against two pretty big shows, Dallas and Miami Vice. Because of this, Max Headroom was canceled partway into its first broadcast season. Leftover episodes would air in the spring of 88. Because it still had some resonance, there was plans to have a Max Headroom film made, but that film, which was titled Max Headroom for President, was never produced. Max Headroom would be the first cyberpunk series to run in the U.S. on a broadcasting network in primetime. Like other science fiction series, the show brought in themes that were unfamiliar to large blocks of America. For example, the series portrayed a group of people known as Blanks, which were a counterculture group of people who wanted to live outside of the official numbering system of the government in order to ensure their privacy, which has become a very popular discussion in today's society. For many young Americans, it was their first exposure to computer culture. And while it was a computer culture that was far off, it was based on technology that we were looking at today. So even though it would be doing amazing things, often people would be typing into computers that looked like the computers we were using, or even a much older looking technology. For example, when Theora is using a computer to take real-time control of a satellite, when they move in on her hands, we don't see a keyboard, but we see the keys of a manual typewriter. So there's this strange juxtaposition of technology from the past and the future. There's 
feelings of alienation and fear of privacy loss, all subjects that would come up in various cyberpunk stories in the 80s, 90s, and even today. In the end, the series was a little bit too ahead of its time, but some of the things that it predicted did come true. The series used a editing technique of rapidly changing images, which is known as rapid fire, and they used this to convey excitement or thrill. Rapid fire imagery became common after the show in the late 80s and 90s and has become a mainstay of networks like MTV and television commercials that we see today. In 2004, because of people fast-forwarding through commercials with their TiVo, CBS did some studies and found that fast-forwarding through commercials, essentially making a blipvert, actually increased recall of an advertiser's message. So they had this idea to actually use blipverps, fast-forwarded commercials, compressed from 30 seconds down to a smaller amount, to make a more effective commercial. Luckily, it was never reported that anyone exploded from such a thing. The series is credited with accurately predicting the rise of hundreds of channels of television, the rise of reality television, webcams, which right in the pilot you see people using things that look like webcams, and of course, as I mentioned, stealth marketing. In an episode called The Blanks, a computer technique was demonstrated called a computer bomb, which links lots of different programs and allows them to be controlled through one computer. And all of those computers can be told to bombard one other computer, creating a massive overload of a network. And today, this attack is in the news all the time, and it's called a denial-of-service attack. Now, while Max didn't have his own TV show anymore, that didn't mean he was off TV. He became the spokesman for New Coke after the return of Classic Coke and delivered his catchphrase slogan, Catch the Wave. Maybe you remember it. Hi, Max Headroom here with... This is my guest. I heard you were big time and the old pop is. Well, I'm going to take that as a no comment. So, nitty gritty time. What I'm talking about, and you're not, is that more people prefer the new refreshing taste of Coke over Pepsi. Sweating? It's true. More people are, as we Cokeologists say, catching the wave. Catch it if you can, can. Catch the wave. Coke. <sighs> that almost makes me want to drink new Coke. Not bad. In the UK, Max appeared in television commercials for radio rentals. Hi there, televisionists. I'm here to warn you about video nasties. And what could be nastier than your video going on the blink? <laughs> this could be bad news if you buy a video, but no problem if you rent one from radio rentals. We'll sort you out in a jiffy. And no video nasty bill. <laughs> Which is why radio rentals say you'll be glued to our sets. Not stuck with them. Well, yoga for beginners. <laughs> In 1986, Quicksilver released a Max Headroom video game, which was sold for the Sinclair ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64. While I've never gotten to play this game, the plot seems pretty simple. You have to protect Edison Carter and rescue Max Headroom. For a while there, Max was a media darling, and he even made a memorable appearance on the David Letterman show. <laughs> Max, excuse me, if you could, uh, Max, yeah, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, Max, uh, could you describe yourself uh, for us? Excuse Just tell the folks a little bit about what you are, what you do. It's a little sticky. I think I had a soggy dream, big fellow. <laughs> There's oil everywhere. <laughs> so, big fellow, yeah. I suppose I see myself as witty. Witty? Urbane. Yeah. Highly, highly. Talented, uh -huh. talented, talented, huge 
individually successful and a keen sense of style. Plus, of course, my own special brand of modesty. What? <laughs> Uh, uh... Help! I'm cramped! <laughs> you, you say you're... Jason! You're cramped. Okay. Uh, could... Why don't you, uh... Why don't, somebody's playing with your tie out here, Max. Uh, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you tell, uh, tell us about how you look and how you dress there? What, is there something interesting we ought to know about your look, your uh, appearance? Uh -huh, big fella, you've touched a sore terminal there, Davy Doo. Uh-huh. Clothes! Well, for me, it's the old bell-bottom golf slacks and tasteful bright ticks, ticks, like those in the book on your last show last night. Uh-huh. But I prefer them in 100% nylon. I like a lot of static around my lower parts, Davy Doo. Yeah. I like the exciting feeling that if you cross your legs too quickly, you might just fuse all the lights. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, what, what can you tell us about your name, Max Hedrum? Does that mean anything other than just a, a, a name? <laughs> <laughs> a daffodil by any other name, I think Oscar Wilde said, wasn't it? Can I tell you a story, Dave? <laughs> yes. Let's talk. You see, Dave, I was driving along in my swagger limo <laughs> before Grace got her little paws on it. <laughs> in fact, it's been specially adapted, poor little old moi, uh -huh. with reverse tinted windows. Now, that means I cannot see my public, but they can see me. I do so hate seeing ordinary people getting wet in the rain. <laughs> anyway, I was driving along one day and suddenly one of my fans shouted, Hey, there's Max Hedrum, and it kind of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you rest me with your applause! Uh, it uh, it kind of stuck is what you're saying then. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't... I don't I, this may be a sensitive area, but it seems to me that you have... Uh, uh, geez, I don't know, kind of a slight uh, speech, um, uh, you know, there's, you have a, a, an interesting speech pattern there. Kind of a, a stutter, I guess. Touching, 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 on. There he is. Why don't you ever stand up? Is it because you caught a vital organ in the top drawer? <laughs> stutter! <laughs> Isn't that a rather harsh way, Davy Do, to describe a slight verbal hez, 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 hesitancy? <laughs> I mean, come on, big fellow, we all have our hereditary idiosyncrasies, <laughs> and mine's been able to say long words without, uh, 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 without stuttering, stuttering, stuttering. <laughs> and, uh, as for holding me back is concerned, well, I'm sitting here now, aren't I? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a darn fine job of it. Uh, oh. Classic television. That stuttering that you actually heard became quite controversial at the time because various stuttering groups thought it was offensive. Max Headroom didn't really last long enough for it to become a bigger issue, but had he, it might have been interesting to see how the people who created Max Headroom would confront that controversy. Now, while some people were very offended, others seemed to love him. And on April 20th, 1987, Max was on the cover of Newsweek magazine, and it had an extensive article about the character, his history, and showed a peek at the Max Headroom television show. In 1987, Max Headroom would appear on Sesame Street, reciting the alphabet. Not a very memorable one, but give it a listen. 
A, B, C, D. E is for elephant. F, G, H, I, J, K, L. M is for Max. That's me. N, O, P, Q, R, S, T is for Tommy. U, V, W, X, Y, Z. So that's the alphabet, kids. <laughs> In 1986, Max Headroom made it to the pop charts. In the U.S., he hit number 34, and in the U.K., he hit number 12 in a remix of an Art of Noise song called Paranoia, where they used Max to redub the vocals. He was also in the music video for the song. In recent years, Max Headroom showed up again when, in the U.K., he was used to warn people of the impending digital TV switchover. Max looks a bit older, and in the advert, he moans about being heaped together with the other relics of the past, much like non-digital television. It says, it says here Channel 4 says here Channel Four is pushing the boundaries of multi-platform digital broadcasting as part of our continued continue, continue commitment to digital switchover. Total crap! He seemed to have missed off the bit about it being thanks to Max Hedrum, who basically told us all to go digital way back in the 80s. Cell phones, I invented them. The internet, that was me. MP3s, they should have called them after me. X! <laughs> yeah, you all thought Max was just a novelty act. Well, now we're all cashing in, aren't we? Go! No, not the face! <laughs> D -d Digital switch switchover is coming. I can see it now. What's that aftershave, Darren? Oh, thank you, Darren. It's so good to have you. In sort of life-mirroring art, there was a famous incident known as the Max Headroom Broadcast Signal Intrusion Incident. I would play a little audio, but without the visual, it doesn't really make much sense, but I really suggest you check it out. On November 22, 1987, two Chicago television stations had their broadcast signals hijacked by a person wearing a Max Headroom mask. The first attack took place for 25 seconds during the sportscast on the 9 o'clock news on WGN-TV, and two hours later, around 11 o'clock on the PBS affiliate, WTTW Channel 11, the signal was hijacked for about 90 seconds during the broadcast of the Doctor Who episode, The Horror of Fang Rock. The hacker who had taken control mumbles some nonsense during the interruptions. If you read up on this, it seems very difficult to hijack a television signal. So it makes it really interesting that the person who did this was never caught. And it's an interesting piece of history that is floating around the web. I suggest you check it out, read up about it, and you can see other instances of hijack signals. But to me, the most interesting one is the one with Max Headroom, because in effect, that's what Max Headroom does. Max Headroom might have been a blip on the pop cultural radar of Americans, but online and talking to people in real life, especially those who work in computers, you find out that this character is very important to them. Perhaps they weren't like me and they understood how the computer technology works, or maybe they were like me and were just inspired to get behind a keyboard just a little bit longer in the hopes that maybe one day they could make their very own Max Headroom. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. 
You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. If you like the art at the top of every podcast, it's done by Christopher Tupa. You can see more of Christopher Tupa's work at his website, ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A dot com. If you like the music that you hear in the Retroist podcast, a lot of it is done by our very own Peachy. If you're interested in some musical needs, why don't you email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Jonathan took the week off from Retro Rewind because this week he's adding a new member to his family. I'd like to congratulate Jonathan and his whole family on the addition to his brood, and I look forward to his return. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Catch the wave. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.